Thank you, Youth Choir and Praise Band, for um, such a great reminder of God's glory and the truth of that. Um, Let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll look at God's word together. God, we love you and thank you for this morning and this opportunity that we have to gather here in your presence. God, to hear from you, to be challenged by your word, to be changed by your word, and to be made more into your image. God, we pray today that you would speak through me. God, that you'd take me out of the way, and God, that your Holy Spirit would speak and move in our midst in this place. God, we pray that you'd receive all the honor and glory, God, because you're the one who honor and glory and praise is truly due. God, work today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This coming Saturday, we approach one of the most anticipated football days of the year for many in our state. In Auburn, Alabama, a battle between two great teams will take place. After the 60 minutes tick off the clock, a winner will emerge. One team's hopes and dreams will be realized. The other team's hopes and dreams will be crushed. And as soon as the game is over, our hopes, expectations, and excitement will begin again for the next time these great rivals face off. I think back to the first Iron Bowl I was able to go to was with my wife, Liz, and this was back in 2010. And as we sat in Bryant-Denny Stadium, I'm an Alabama fan, Liz is an Auburn fan, we watched this very thing play out. Um, As we got into halftime, I was excited because Alabama was up and the victory was hopefully coming. But sure enough, the second half came around and times turned and Auburn won. When you think about rivalries, there's nothing quite like the Iron Bowl. It's ranked the third best rivalry in the nation from a report from the NCAA at the beginning of this year's season. The report said that in the state of Alabama, you're either screaming War Eagle or Roll Tide every Saturday. And if you don't pick orange or crimson as a child, you're told to leave the state. (laughs) Dating back to 1893, the Iron Bowl has the biggest in-state rivalry in the country. These teams hate each other so much that they canceled the series because they couldn't agree on the ground rules. This rivalry is back in full force with further evidence that iron sharpens iron as the winner of this game has won the BCS title the last four years. The anticipation that many of us in this room have for next Saturday is heightened with both teams having potentials to go to the SEC championship. In your mind, some of you are already preparing for next Saturday. You know what you're going to wear. You know where you'll watch the game, who you'll be with, and who you'll call to aggravate if your team wins. We have such anticipation and excitement and preparation in our approach to the Iron Bowl. But what will be our approach when it comes to attending church the next day? I think our temptation is to let church become routine and to lose the fact of what we're truly gathering here to do. We're gathering here to meet God in community with others. We're here to worship, bless, and praise, and give thanks to the God who alone is worthy of our worship. When we lose the awe, amazement, and excitement of gathering together, our worship suffers. Where are we this morning? How are we approaching the God of the universe today? Do we come to church today with an eager anticipation to praise God, worship God, and to hear from God? 
Or are we simply going through the motions of yet another Sunday morning? As I looked at this week's passage, I was convicted that I often fall in that routine of church and lose the all for God. As we continue our study of Psalms 100, we'll see the importance of our approach to God in worship and some reasons why we should thankfully worship God. This morning, we will see that thankful worship is an anticipated response of praise to the one who alone is worthy. Thankful worship is an anticipated response of praise to the one who alone is worthy. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 100. We will reread verses 1 through 3, which Pastor Chris covered last week, and then move forward to look at our text for today. Psalms 100, starting in verse 1 reading from the English Standard Version, goes this way. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Give thanks to them. Him and bless his name. For the Lord, he is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness endures to all generations. So we approach this text in verse 4. We see that the call is to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Verse 4 we see that our approach to God in worship is to be thankful. Our approach to God in worship is to be thankful. The psalm began last week with joy and praise, now moves into thanksgiving. We are to enter into the presence and the worship of God with a spirit of thankfulness. But in order to truly be thankful, we must first have reflected first and foremost on what God has done. Which leads us to our next point, that thankful worship is preceded by anticipation and preparation. We think about this when we think of the Iron Bowl example at the beginning. The preparation and the time and the energy and the excitement that goes into watching such a great game. And then we approach Sunday so haphazardly. Sunday mornings tend to be crazy mornings for families. You know, you go to get into church and the kids have fought on the way here and life has been crazy and it's been a mess trying to get everybody dressed in the right way. And and you come into Sunday and when you get here, you may be utterly exhausted. We've got everybody dressed, we've done everything we need to do and now we're here. But when we come to worship, are we coming with an attitude to hear from God? We must approach God and praise him with anticipation and preparation. Have we spent time with God this week? Are we coming here and when we sing songs, there's not just words on the screen or words from a hymn book. Is this an overflow of our heart to God? Is this an overflow of the fact that we've spent time with the Lord this week and we're excited to gather in this place with eager anticipation to worship him? Have we come with thoughtful statements of thanksgiving? If you were to give thanks to someone or thanks to something about, some, about something you're grateful for, that requires previous thought. To give thanks requires a time of reflection and a time of self-examination. What am I truly thankful for? 
What truly matters? What has God truly done in my life? Are we praying that God will speak to us when we approach worship? Because we have a God who speaks. We have a God who's alive. When we read God's word, these aren't just stories of a past time and a God that interacted in history. These are stories of a God who's alive today, a God who's at work in the world, and a God who's at work in our church and at work in each one of our lives. Do we come with anticipation to hear from him? Do we believe that God wants to do great things in our church today? Do we believe that? Do we come with this anticipation? Because thankful worship is preceded by anticipation and preparation. Which leads to the second point. Thankful worship results in praise. Thankful worship results in praise. We cannot help but praise God because of what he has done. Thankful worship is a praise overflowing from our lips and being lived out in our lives as we celebrate the greatness of God. Is our praise so great that it doesn't simply happen during our gathered times of worship, but overflows into our time with God and our daily life? As we praise, we celebrate our thankfulness to God. The end of verse 4, it says this, to give thanks to him and to bless his name, which leads to our last point. Thankful worship centers on the fame of one. Thankful worship centers on the fame of one. Our worship is not supposed to be focused on our preferences. It's easy to come into church and think, oh, we didn't sing the song I like today. We didn't do the style of music I like today. The pastor didn't read the verse I wanted him to read today. But our worship is not to be focused on our own preferences, desires, or wants. And also when you think about worship being focused on the fame of one, you realize that those who lead us in worship are not to be the ones our attentions are focused on. They're merely servants pointing our attention to the one who alone is worthy of our worship. In verse 4, we see that it ends with bless his name. We see the name of the Lord used. When we see this term in scripture, it's not simply referring to God's name. Like God's name that's used in the text is Yahweh. But the name of God and the concept of the name of God includes the wholeness of who God is and what he has done. It is the depth of his character. It is his reputation and work which leads the psalmist into verse 5 to begin to speak about how great God is and who God is, which leads us to verse 5, which says this, The Lord, he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. We thankfully worship God because of who he is. We thankfully worship God because of who he is. We can so often separate who God is from our worship of him. It's possible to come in and to sing songs and to praise God, but if we don't know who God is, we're not truly praising God. If we don't know God's character, if we don't know God's redemption, if we don't know what God has done for us, we're just singing songs to some God we may have made up, to some God that fits our own preferences. We have a lot of times we tend to make gods in our own image. When we look at the Ten Commandments, it begins with, do not make have any other gods before me. And it's easy for us to, if we 
separate who God is from who God reveals himself to be in God's in his word we tend to worship a God that looks a lot like we want him to look a God who's there when we need him a God who's more like a cosmic Santa Claus than the God of the universe a God who's not the true God so our worship of God and the truth of who God is must be connected Because our worship is not vain excitement or expressions. It is grounded first and foremost in the character, name, and the renown of God who is real, alive, and is at work in our world. When we approach these truths, these are not ideas of old that only apply to the writer of the psalm. These are truths that we can hold on to in our lives and truths that cause us to respond in thankful worship. Verse 5, we first see that he is good. God is good. He does what is good for his glory and his children's good. When we think about this term that God is good, this is something that we tend to assume as Christians, that God is good and that God wants good for his people. But what's interesting is when you step out of Christianity and look in the world of other religions, I think of the many times I've been to Atlanta Um, to a place outside of Atlanta in Clarkston, Georgia, called International Village. International Village is an interesting place because people who have migrated to the U.S. from all over the world, immigrated to the U.S. from all over the world, have come to live there in International Village. And when you walk down the street, you hear all different languages and all different people and all different cultures are there gathered in that place. And I can think of going there and experiencing this and walking through the Hindu temple. And as we walked into the Hindu temple, we saw people worshiping these gods. And as these people came to worship these gods, they didn't believe that the God was good. Because in most other religions, it's all about appeasing the God. If something's gone wrong in your life, if something's gone wrong in your world, what did I do to make God mad? What did I do to upset God? What kind of judgment is coming upon me? At the heart of Hinduism, at the heart of these religions, you have people trying to appease these gods because their gods, first, aren't real, and second, they don't believe that their God is good. When we look at Christianity, when we look at the God of the Bible, we have a God that's truly good. We have a God that truly loves his children. We have a God that sent his son to rescue his children. We have a God who has a heart that is good. We're not here today trying to check off enough boxes and do enough good things to make God happy. We're here today celebrating and excited because God is good and he's shown his goodness to us. So there we're here to celebrate. It changes everything. God is good. But the psalmist doesn't stop with his goodness. He goes on in the second part of the verse, his steadfast love endures forever. God's love never ends. God's love never ends. The word here for love could also be translated as God's everlasting kindness. This is a word in the text that is used between God's promises between him and his people. That I'll give you an everlasting kindness. I'll give you everlasting hope. Our God is kind and caring for his people. And that great kindness and love never ends. And then last, he's faithful forever. God is faithful in that he's firm in keeping his promises to his people. 
God's promises never change. He is faithful forever. We can worship with thankful praise. We can respond to God with thanks because of his great love, because of his great goodness, because of what he has done for us. When we look at these promises and these statements in this text, it brings us back to the Old Testament, to Exodus chapter 34. And this text is called the Shema, and it's a text that the Hebrews looked at as a clear picture of who God is. And it reads this way. The Lord says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's childrens to the third and the fourth generation. Here in the heart of God, here in God's description of his character, we see two different paths. We see the path of blessing. That God is a God that's gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness and kindness. But the verse hinges. But he will not clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers and the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. We see here a God that desires to bless, be merciful, be gracious, who responds to us with his amazing love. But we have a problem. If we're honest in looking at this text on our own, we are guilty. We're not in the path of God's blessing on our own. So naturally, on our own, we stand opposed to God. We stand as sinners under God's punishment, under God's wrath. Which leads us to the truth that allows us to celebrate in thankful worship in even a greater way than the psalmist and the, and the believers of the Old Testament. We can celebrate with thankful praise because of Jesus. Because when we were guilty, when we had nothing to bring to the table, when we stood as sinners under God's punishment, God sent Jesus. We're going to start our Advent series next week and look at this for the next few weeks. But Jesus lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. And he rose again to give us new life. So we can stand under the blessing of God instead of the judgment of God. Because Jesus took our curse. Because Jesus took our place. This is the truth that changes everything. The divine rescue plan of God through Jesus is where we most clearly see the truth that God is good. His love never ends. And he's faithful forever. Because of this divine rescue, we have a great reason to rejoice. We have a great reason to give thanks. Because Jesus rescued us. And Jesus is worthy of the worship of every one of us in this room. We can have, we can be thankful today because God showed his favor to us in a great way and God changed our story. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you that you are a rescuing God. God, we thank you that you have a rescuing heart for us and that you did not leave us in our sin. You did not leave us in our brokenness. God, but you sent your son Jesus to take our place. God, we thank you that we can have hope. God, we thank you that we can respond to you in grateful praise because you are the one to whom alone that praise is due. God, in these moments, pray that you would work in our midst. God, I pray if there are people here today, God, who do not know you, who do not know the grace that's found in your sacrifice of your son for them. God, I pray that they would come to the point today where they would acknowledge you as their Savior and their God. God, today there are people that need to recommit their lives to you, God, that need to surrender themselves to you once again, God. I pray that you do that in them during this time. And God, if there are people here today that need to join this church, God, work in their hearts. We love you. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you love never fails and that you're faithful forever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. During this time, if you want someone to pray with, if you are wrestling with truth of who God is and what it means to have a relationship with Christ, or if you want to come and move your membership and move your fellowship to join this group of believers here at Meadowbrook Baptist, now is your time. David's going to lead us.